we, uh, you know, went and ripped it up at Paisley for about an hour and 20 minutes. And, uh, they, you know, they told me that he was out there partying and dancing and laughing and just, you know, loving it. And so we finish, come, come off stage. We're going down this dark hallway in Paisley Park. And there was no lights. And I saw a shadow coming out of the corner. And he was clapping his hands like, you know. Bravo, bravo. You guys killed it, you know. We went into the little commissary there, sat and talked for like an hour. He was telling me all these things that he wanted to do. He said, I want to take the band. I want to manage you guys, European tour. I want to send you guys to Europe and set up all this stuff and, you know, had all these big plans. And, uh, you know, I'm leaving and uh, the dude gives me a hug. He's like, uh, I love you. That caught me off guard because... He had never talked like that to me. And so I was like, uh, you know, cool. I love you, too. Um, and um, he said, you know, and I'll be in touch and we're going to do all this stuff. And I was like, all right. You know, I look forward to it. And uh, that was it, man. Two months later, um, he passed away. Who was Prince? Prince, 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 Prince. Man. Word on the street is he's messing with some drugs. And I just looked at them and I said, he's on something. I remember just seeing him and just looking at him like, dude, like he looks so small and so frail. And it just concerned me. Prince seemed so sad. Around midnight, it hit me like a ton of bricks. My daughter walked into my room. I was half asleep and she was like, Prince died. And I was like, what? They found an employee dead there. And he's like, no, man. He said, uh, it was Prince. And I said, you, you, you're lying. Welcome to Chapter 8 of Who Was Prince. Chapter 8, the doctor said you were dead, and I, I say it's senseless. A chapter about the end of Prince's life. I'm your host, Torre, and when Prince was in his late 40s, his body started really breaking down. You're talking about somebody who wore heels, not just wore them, but danced in them strenuously and jumped in them and ran all over the stage in them and jumped up on speaker cabinets and did splits in heels. That can't be healthy for your feet, your hips, your knees. It's got to take a toll. By the double O's, he'd been touring for almost three decades straight. He did over 20 tours between 1979 and the mid double O's, around a thousand shows. There's almost never a year when he's not on a major tour. He complained of intense pain in his hips and his knees, but for years he refused to get surgery because of his aversion to doctors and because of his faith. He was a Jehovah's Witness then. I saw him perform at Madison Square Garden in 2010, and he came out in flats rather than heels, holding a cane. And even though he rocked the house, something felt wrong. I called a friend who was close to him and said, why is he in flats? And he said, Prince is in a lot of pain. Morris Hayes talked to Prince about that pain many times. By the time it got to the end, man, I, all I know is stuff looked weird and things was going. And I, and I did know that Prince was dealing with issues like his, you know, his hips, to which sometime he'd tell me it was his knee or something. I remember being with him and Tyler Perry one night, and he was telling me about how um, that he had talked to Tiger Woods' doctor and about, you know, getting his, some knee surgery or something. And I was like, knee surgery? And I'm like, okay, bro. I said, well, you get your knee fixed. 
And I said, Prince, do it. I said, you're, you, the only thing you're going to be pissed off about is that you didn't do it sooner, bro. Go get it done, man, and call it a day. You jump off of speakers. You wear high heels. Nobody can sustain that forever. So go get it hooked up, man. They can do it. At some point, Prince began dealing with it by using opioids like fentanyl. Now, this is surprising because it runs counter to everything we know about Prince. He was anti-drugs when he was a teenager, wouldn't even smoke weed. When he was a young rock star in the cocaine-obsessed 80s, he abstained. He staunchly avoided drugs when he was a young man, the time of your life when you expect someone to try. But in a way, it's not surprising that Prince fell into addiction when he was older because he was all about the work and performing. And when he got older and didn't have a family to go home to and only had his fans... He had to violate his own laws in order to be able to keep working because his body was falling apart and he needed the opioids to keep going. It wasn't rock star excess. It wasn't hedonism. It was about managing pain so he could get back to work, which is exactly why so many Americans use opioids. And like so many of us, at some point, he became addicted. Morris Hayes talks about a time in the early 90s when he tried to talk to Prince about his drug use. There was a time that I had approached him back in the 90s when I thought he was, you know, we were just sitting around talking and Prince was just like killing us. And, and one of the cats was like, man, word on the street is he's messing with some drugs or whatever. And I said, do you believe that? And, and he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, then you ain't shit because if you think that's the case, then you ought to say something to him. And then I remember, like, you know, just kind of feeling like, well, I'm going to say something because if he, if he is and he dies, I don't have a job anyway, so I might as well say something about it. I go in his office, and I tell him. I said, Prince, you know, I didn't say who said it or nothing like that. I didn't want to throw nobody under the bus, but I just said, I just said, look, man, word on the street. I just said it like it was said to me. I said, word on the street is you're doing drugs. And I said, if you are, your slip is showing, bro. Man, I'm, I'm not trying to cause any trouble, but I'm concerned because the, the way you've been acting is a little different, and I wouldn't even give it any credence if it wasn't for that. And he told me, he said, no, nah, man, it's nothing like that, and he denied it. He's like, I'm not doing nothing like that. But then he took a week off. Like, right after that, he just left for a week. Nobody knew. I didn't know where he was, and he just showed up after a week later, and when I walked in, you know, he had cameras and stuff. So when I walked in... He pushed star, the numbers, and then you talk in the phone and you go all over Paisley. And he said, Morris, come to my office. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. So I go up in his office and he says, have a seat. And he's walking around doing his thing, whatever, just like we was when I went in for the first meeting. He's kind of, which is kind of nerve wracking because you're sitting there and he's walking around pacing and stuff. And I'm like, uh, so he, he's like, uh, hey, man, I just want you to know uh, I, I appreciate I appreciate you coming in here. Man, and Tori, I'm kind of messed up. I can never tell this story. I get choked up every time, so I'm going to try to hold it together. He said, man, I just want you to know, since I've been a professional, I've never gone a week without picking up my guitar or writing a song. I've never gone a week and not done that before. And he said, I want you to know I appreciate you coming in here and saying what you had to say and, and everything. And, and he said, I went and chilled out and looked at the water and, and, uh, and, and all of this, and I just was like, okay, cool. Sounds like he's saying Prince went to rehab. But either way, the pain persisted, and he struggled with how to deal with it. Some people told me that Prince did eventually get hip surgery. Some people told me he never did. It's unclear. Morris Hayes felt confident that he did. 
He got the surgery. It did make a difference. He was so much better to me. It's like I remember seeing him kind of wincing coming upstairs and stuff, and then he wasn't wincing coming upstairs. That's how I know he got the surgery. But I just could see the difference that he didn't need his cane, and he could go up and down the stairs, like coming up and down the side of the stage. He just hopping along like real nice. I just noticed there was a marked improvement in his mobility and that he was getting around and he was like looked like he was happy and that he was doing well. But at some point, the chronic pain returned, and with it, so did the opioids and the dependence. I knew that there was like pain pills and people like get addicted to pain pills. Like most people, if you give them opioids, they get addicted to them. Everybody knows that. In Prince's last years, he was distant from many of the people who had been close to him earlier in his life, which made it hard for the people who loved him to give him the support he needed. He was still touring regularly, but... People who knew him could see something was wrong. Something was off. After 2012, Morse Hayes was no longer in the inner circle, but he could tell from the outside that all was not well. There was like four years of, like I barely even saw Prince in person. I talked to him on the phone and maybe he'd send me an email when he needed some samples or something like this. I just would see him on TV from looking at him, just like, wow, he's so small now. And he's just so tiny. And so that's when I just got concerned, you know, come to find out that, you know, like if, if you're doing other things like this, it could affect your appetite and weight and stuff like this. You know, so I just had to piece it together like everybody else. You know, not being there every day to just kind of like I would see his transformation in different time chunks. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden. He's looking real thin. I just watched a lot of different transformational things that was happening that I thought, this is weird. This is not what I remember from when I was there. Like, everything has gotten very loose or lax or whatever. I just knew it was different. But when I I saw him, I remember just seeing him and just looking at like, dude, like he looks so small and so frail. And it just concerned me. A good friend of mine, Kieran Sharma, who was, you know, Prince's manager, I would call Kieran and be like, Kieran, I don't know, man. Dude is looking like real slim and, and his face is like, you know, kind of sucked in. Wendy Melvoin wasn't around Prince much in those days either, but she too could see that he seemed to be withering away. You could tell by his physicality, by the time he died, he was 103 or 107 pounds. On the parade tour, he was 145, okay? That's a big difference, and he was all muscle. But by the time he passed away, he was like a baby bird. Lots of people were noticing that Prince was not well. Alan Leeds was also out of the inner circle by then, but he could see it. He was unhealthy. There was something wrong. And I'm still not convinced that that there might not have been some other ailment Mm. beside the uh, substance abuse that maybe he was aware of, or maybe he wasn't, but just felt symptoms and was afraid, or maybe he had a diagnosis that was kept secret of something. I think that's a possibility. Chris Rock told me that the year that Prince died, Chris was vacationing over New Year's in St. Bart's. And apparently it was a a lot of celebrity friends and God knows who else. It was a, a bunch of people that had deep pockets. And Prince was hired to entertain at some affair for the people who happened to be spending New Year's Eve in St. Bart's. Chris told me that Prince seemed so sad. He said he showed up, no girlfriend, 
So um, other than his crew, he was by himself, and he sang and played his ass off, got his check, and got back in a private plane and left. He made no attempt to socialize, and there were a lot of people there that were that anybody would be like, hey, I spent New Year's Eve with Paul McCartney. You know, you would want to stay at this party, many of whom were his peers, people he knew. He knew Chris. He'd known Chris for years and years. Chris said that he was worried about him then because it was just sad. He just looked so alone, lonely. Prince has always been reclusive. His idea of socializing was always in a very controlled atmosphere, but he never looked sad. He just looked like the potentate who's in control. But Chris emphasized that he just looked sad. He said, didn't look well, and he really looked sad. He said that the, the whole thing was just sad that it really bothered him because the, the whole idea of the event was tainted because of the way he carried himself. Now, was he already deep in the pills and was he blasted? Who knows? This is a guy who'd been married twice unsuccessfully, had wanted to have kids and fathered one kid, tragically passed away very quickly after birth and was living in an apartment in Paisley Park that had begun as his office. I mean, it always had a bed in it in case he wanted to take a nap because he would record for days on end. But it was never designed as living quarters, permanent living quarters. And that's what it had become. And, and it was almost like, be careful what you asked for. You wanted this reclusiveness, Mr. Howard Hughes. Well, now you got it. Jill Jones said she saw Prince at a memorial for Vanity, one of the loves of Prince's life, and one of the central singers in his universe. She was the outlet for some of his feminine energy as the leader of Vanity Six, the group that performed the unforgettable Prince-written song, Nasty Girl. I mean, Vanity Six was the group that Prince created and wrote songs for as a way to express his feminine side, just the way that the time was created to help Prince express his hypermasculine pimpish side. So Vanity, as an artist, was in many ways the female version of Prince. She was cast as the female lead in Purple Rain, but dropped out shortly before filming, so her part was played by Apollonia. Vanity died of kidney failure in February of 2016, just months before Prince died. Prince emailed Jill Jones, among many other friends, to come to a memorial show he did after Vanity's passing. When Jill saw Prince, she thought, he doesn't look healthy. And I just looked at them and I said, he's on something. She said she had never known him to do drugs, so it was shocking. She was talking to Susan Muncy, who was Prince's girlfriend in the early 80s and one third of Vanity Six and Apollonia Six. And she told Susan that he looked bad. And then he walked over. And they were like, what? I said, he's on something. Now remember, I'm super, super tall. I'm like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, and these girls are all like 5'2", little chipmunks. I'm also in high heels. I'm leaned over in the corner, bent down talking to them. So it looks like I'm gossiping. And I kind of, maybe I was. He shows up right there goes, what are you guys talking about? And then Susan totally loves Susan. She's like, you. We're talking about you. Why are you so thin? What's going on? He didn't answer in words, but Jill got her answer by reading Prince's vibe. There was a little bit of, he had telepathic 
I don't sound, I'm going to sound loopy right now, but for me and him, it was like I could, we could sometimes read each other. Our minds, like you could think and he would call. You could, there was just a different kind of reading of the minds. So when I saw him, when he said, what are you all talking about? I knew when I looked at him that he knew, I knew that something was wrong. And I'm not saying he was slurring or he was all over himself. It was just his spirit. And so in that conversation, we all had said, you know what, we're going to come up and uh, we'll interchange and come and get feed you. And Apollonia said she was going to go and look after him. And he was, and I said, let's all get together like once a year. You know, we're getting a little long in the tooth to be like, you know, not just check on each other every now and then. And... He was like, fine. I had suggested us all doing something like skydiving because I said, have you all done it? And he was like, I'm not doing that. So I often still think about now, like, this is a guy who told me he wouldn't skydive, but he was taking like fentanyl. I mean, that still messes with me. Still. I just want to go and smack him. If he knew what was happening. I don't know. I think all of the people during that time were the early years because those were the times he was coming back to. He was reaching out to all of us. That's what's so crazy. And I just sometimes wonder if he'd have had us all through it. On April 15th, after a show in Atlanta, Prince was flying home to Minneapolis when his private plane made an emergency stop in Moline, Illinois. People who knew him well were very alarmed. Morris Hayes said, Me knowing Prince uh, as well as I figured I did, there's no way, unless he was in dire straits, that they would have landed that plane that close to Minneapolis. Prince was less than an hour away from his destination when they landed. Prince don't like the doctor. He didn't like the doctor. I don't care what he felt like, he wouldn't have wanted to stop and he would want to go home, to, no matter what. So the fact that it landed there and they had to do whatever they had to do meant that it was big trouble. And that was concerning to me. They announced that Prince had the flu, but people who knew him doubted that. Jill Jones said she didn't believe it for a second. Napolonia told all of us that it was because he had the flu, and I kept going, why would you come down in a plane that fast with the flu? Even if you have something with your blood clot, maybe, but a flu? So I was a little bit skeptical. Alan Leeds remembers thinking, No, the plane, it's not going to do an emergency landing at less than an hour from home. I mean, Moline's not that far from Minneapolis, you know. And, and um, you don't do an emergency landing for, for the flu. But if I recall correctly, it was pretty much common knowledge, and I don't know where I got it. I can't, I can't think of the sequence of calls or who it was, but it was, it was kind of common knowledge that, that he had had some kind of a reaction to drugs. In reality, when the plane landed, paramedics carried him to an ambulance on the tarmac and revived him with a shot of Narcan, which is a drug that combats opioid overdoses. People who had been close to Prince called each other, saying, what is going on? They knew something was wrong. Morris Hayes made one of those calls. So I remember calling somebody and talking to him about it, like, dude, are y'all okay? Because I know this is not good, because whatever happened is bad, because he would have never stopped there to do anything, to get a Coca-Cola, nothing. So I know it's trouble. 
So that was concerning to me, and I remember calling Karen and just kind of telling her, like, I, I just don't feel good about it, and, and, and something's, like, really off, and it's not good. And we got to, you know, I don't know what to do. I think we got to do something. And I just remember, like, the week. He means the week before Prince passed away. I called one of his folks and just say, hey, man, is it, is it like, stuff cool, man, because it's not, I'm seeing this on TV. This don't look good. And I said, if you don't get a handle on it, this dude's going to be out of here. And I just said, so whatever y'all doing, it needs to get tightened up because it's just, it's just, he don't look good. And, it, and the situation doesn't look good. Four days before Prince passed, Morse Hayes had dinner with Prince's former manager and they talked about what they could do. But not being insiders anymore, their options were limited. We're outsiders now. I just said, we're, we're not in the inner circle. We're outsiders. If we just show up at Paisley, we're going to get our lunch ate. And, and it's not going to be pretty. Because I know him, you know, so I'm just thinking that is not a good idea. But, you know, in hindsight, I'm thinking perhaps and maybe should have done something. On April 21st, 2016, six days after that emergency landing in Moline, Jill Jones was in L.A. and she abruptly woke up feeling an immense sadness. I don't know, around two in the morning, woke up, I couldn't get my breath. I was like, <gasps> like that. And then I just became very, very ill, sick to my stomach, and just started throwing up. It was terrible. It was just awful. And then I think I went and got a bottle of scotch. It was really sad. She did not learn until a few hours later that Prince was dead. He was at home at Paisley Park when he overdosed on fentanyl. He was found hours later in an elevator. He was wearing a black shirt and pants both on backwards, and his socks were inside out. Where he got that fentanyl became a huge topic of conversation and the subject of a police investigation because it seems like it may have been bought on the underground market. It may have been mislabeled. It may not have been clear to him what exactly he was taking. Police never found complete answers, and many people like Alan Leeds continue to have serious questions. What's been established, if nothing else, is that the fentanyl was something he didn't know he was taking. The fentanyl was in a counterfeit Vicodin that had been bought in the illicit market. The investigation was unable to trace where it was bought, but somehow he got some street drugs that were counterfeit Vicodins. Now, Vicodin is an opioid, but it's not... It's, I mean, you got to take a lot of Vicodin to get sick. It's, it's not that strong. It's about half the strength of a Percocet, I guess, is what I read. And Percocet is about one-tenth the strength of fentanyl. So, you know, it, 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 it was established because they found pills, and then they analyzed them, and they were, they were made to look like Vicodin, but they weren't Vicodin, and they were spiked with this fentanyl. So I think it's pretty clear... That and perhaps that was the same thing he took the night of the Moline incident. Who the hell knows? The reason you would buy street drugs is because you're taking too many in the first place and you can't get them legally because the doctors have a limitation on how many they'll prescribe. So you're overdoing it in the first place. That's what drives you to get them illicitly because you've run out of doctors or you've run out of prescriptions and you need more, either because your pain is worse or your addiction tolerance is higher, whatever the case. You take that stuff long enough, your tolerance builds, and all of a sudden you need three to do the job of one. Duh, that's 
called drugs. Anna Fantastic and many others have more serious questions. Yeah, I don't know if I want to say this. <laughs> but don't think he just, you know, went out in the streets and got these counterfeit pills himself off anybody. So something's, you know, not right. And I don't think people had his best interest at heart. I just don't. Whether it was accidental or foul play, there's, you know, more involved in this for sure. Prince's death had a massive impact on all of us. For those who had been close to him, it was acutely painful. I couldn't believe it. When they said they found the body there, I kind of knew it was him immediately, but I kept hoping it was somebody else. Like so many who were close to him, she was angry with herself and with the people around him. Feeling like, God, why didn't we get there quicker? And then you want to blame everybody. And I still kind of do blame them. She blames the inner circle that was with him at the end. Yes, I do. I think they're silent and they they have to live with whatever it is. That's just their thing. That's how they do friendships. But normal, healthy, reasonable, rational people in the world, good people, don't. But, you know... It's hard to stop an addict. They will fight you to get their drug. They'll lie. They'll trick you. They'll do anything. After he died, investigators found pain pills hidden in vitamin bottles and aspirin bottles. But the people around him knew the situation was dire. The day before he died, someone called an addiction specialist in Los Angeles and said they needed him to come right away. The specialist said he could not come that day. He could come the following day. And Prince's camp told him that would be too late. The man sent his son, who also worked in treating addiction, and the son was one of the people who found Prince's dead body. I grew up with people who had addiction problems, and I know what it's like. The codependency of, you know, just, I wouldn't have left anybody. After Prince died, Morris Hayes' phone started ringing off the hook. You hear the phone going like, like this, and it just was constantly, constantly, when I would, like, I'm like, what is going on? Like, I go in the room, and it's just, like, moving on the table. Like, it's going to vibrate off the table. Man, bro, I turn my phone over. You know how you click the screen, and then the screen comes on? I had 450-something messages. 400. I had never seen a number like that on my text messages before. Like, like 400 messages on my text message. And I'm like, what in the hell? And so it was ringing. It was a guy named Greg Sane back in Minneapolis, a guy I used to be in the band Carmen with. And he said, bro, are you watching the news? Like, turn on CNN. I'm like, what? Like, what's that? He said, man, turn on the news. I go turn on the TV, and it's like helicopters flying over Paisley, and I'm like, what is going on? I'm standing there looking at it like, what's, what, like, what's, what's, what's happening? What's going on? And they're like, yeah, you know, we got reports that Prince is... And I'm like, get out of... And, I, and my stomach just goes in my shoes. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, what is... And just my air goes out. And, and, and when, when that report comes, they think they... I just break down, bro. I'm like crying like a baby. Like, I, my gut is like I've been stabbed in the stomach. And the first thing I'm thinking about is what I told Karen. Like, if, if they don't do something, he's out of here is what I told her. If somebody don't, I, I told her, I said, they have to do it. They're the inner circle now. They have to fix it. And I say, they, they have to do it. And, 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 and when I saw that that happened, 
I realized they didn't do it, and, and my stomach just literally, I just got fell to my knees. And it was like somebody stabbed me. That's and, and, and like I said, everything going through my head is like, I screwed up, I should have went, I should have did this. Manuela Testolini, Prince's second wife, called Maite, his first wife, and told her, and they cried together. Anna Fantastic was at home in California, lying in bed. My daughter walked into my room. I was half asleep, and she was like, um, Fred's died. And I was like, what? Are you sure? She was like, yeah. And so I just pulled the covers over my head and cried. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Susanna Melvoin was in a college classroom taking a class when another student yelled out, Oh my God, Prince is dead. Susanna didn't believe it, but... When she looked at her phone, it was exploding with messages. She ran out of class and called Wendy, who was at home. They cried together, and then right away, they flew to Paisley Park. I learned all my skills from him, you know. I also learned how to be fearless with other instruments. I had played other instruments at that point, but... You know, in my own career with Lisa, I ended up playing drums and bass and guitar on all of our records without any fear. It was like, well, why not? I mean, this is a, this is out of pure necessity at this point, so I'm going to do it, and I'm not bad at it. And I, I got my self-confidence from him. Um, that's one thing that's deeply painful to not have him on the planet because there was a certain amount of my... Measuring of my own personal abilities was based on what his reaction would be or what he would think of something. He was my thermometer. And to not have that compass anymore is really, it's, it's devastating. I've had to find, you know, my, my own way, this, this internal compass that um, I've had to reinvent, which is something I never really thought about until he passed away. Jerome was at home. And my niece comes to me and she says, oh, your phone's blowing up. I said, okay, I'll be in in a minute. She comes to me 20 minutes later. Oh, your phone is really blowing up. Sorry, leave me alone. Let me finish doing what I'm doing. No, she said, your phone's blowing the F up. So I come in, I grab my phone, and my wife is watching CNN, and they're talking about Prince. Morse Day was in an airport when he heard that Prince was gone. I first saw it on the news. I was on a flight from Las Vegas to Florida, and we had a layover in Chicago. And uh, my wife and I sitting there at the bar and, uh, you know, having a drink, and uh, uh, I saw Paisley Park on the on the news and uh, these cop cars and all that. And at the time, they were saying that uh, an employee was found dead at Paisley. And I'm like, you know, wow. So a buddy of mine calls me and he's like, you hear, you hear about what's going on at, at Paisley? I said, yeah. I said, uh, they found an employee dead there. And he's like, no, nah, man. He said, uh, it was Prince. And I said, uh, 
you, you, you're lying. And um, I think at that point, I was in denial. I really didn't believe it. That night, um, around midnight, it hit me like a ton of bricks because, you know, that's when it's, it all started coming to me, like all the stuff we've been through and what a, you know, important part of my life this Duke was. So that was a tough night. I remember everything, you know, just uh, playing music together, hanging out, laughing together. Um, just, you know, pretty much everything kind of flashed by eventually and then just kept hitting me in waves, man. I was like, uh, this is crazy. Brown Mark was at home. It was early in the morning and my, my boy Hucky, he called me up and he said, uh, he said, you ain't gonna believe this, man. He says, I think, I think he's gone. I think he's gone. I said, who's gone? You know, that he, he had passed. And that, man, I just broke down, man. I just broke down. I, I think I cried for like three days. I immediately uh, booked an airline ticket, flew to Minneapolis. And so the revolution too. So we all ended up flying to uh, Minneapolis. And uh, we didn't get invited to the funeral, which I thought was ac- absolutely weird, but um, we made our own. We, we uh, gathered together in the hotel that we were in. Um, they gave us a floor. And then so we had all the PRN alumni, all the people, because none of us got invited. And so all of us, we were on the hotel and we all kind of just gathered together and, and had our little grief moment. We all just gathered up on the floor and uh, we would just uh, tell stories. But it was fun to reminisce and talk about all the fun times we had on the road together and just talk and grieve together, you know, because everybody was sad. So that's what it became about for us. I think they had the funeral a couple of days later, but it was it was invite only though. I mean, I just remember we were never invited. I was pissed. I was so mad. Cause I was like, what kind of crap is this? I'm painting there's a mural of me on the freaking wall, but you you know, I can't even I can't even get invited. I, I remember I was pissed. And I don't know who was behind it, nor do I care, but all I know is you know, we we were able to put our own thing together and we were happy with that. The death of Prince seems hard to process because he seemed larger than life. He seemed to have supernatural abilities. He seemed superhuman. And when we look back at all of the music and all of the touring and all the memories he left behind and all the love he inspired in all of his fans, it does seem like Prince was somehow more than human and in a way prince can't die because he was his music and his music will last forever it seems like he's bigger than a human i don't mean just the way he is his own genre the distillation of all the funkiness and the soulfulness that came before him into one person who could do everything sing write, dance guitar drums keys rock soul pop funk it's more than that when i say he's bigger than a human I mean, he wasn't normal. As a small child, he willed away epilepsy. He just decided to not have epilepsy anymore, and he just didn't. Who does that? As a teenager, he taught himself how to play almost every instrument at an elite level. Who does that? He decided to become a rock star, and he made it. And his career lasted, and his music became deeply meaningful to millions of people. 
He needed that validation because he felt abandoned by both his mother and his father, creating a deep void of insecurity that led him to always need control. He never wanted to need others, and becoming a rock star would give him that control. But of course, he needed connection. That's a basic human imperative. So soothing his wounded inner child by becoming a rock god came with a curse, as if it was delivered by a devil's bargain. It was easier for him to relate to people through music than through conversation. I mean, how ironic. It was easier for him to connect through lyrics than through words, and easier for him to connect deeply with giant crowds than with one person standing in front of him. His career was filled with all the dreams. He made an iconic film about his life. He toured the world over and over. He had tons of money, got all the awards, had amazing girlfriends, influenced a whole generation, and yet he had no family. He tried over and over to create his own family, but he always failed. So when he got to midlife and he'd fulfilled most of his dreams, he had no one to share it with. Late in life, he kept performing and touring on a relentless schedule. And when his body said no mas because it was too much, he insisted on more because he had no real home to go to. Performing and being a star was his identity. He was a man who had a deep, passionate, loving relationship with music. His family was his fans. His stage was his real home. So he had to keep going. So the man who became a Jehovah's Witness and knocked on doors in Minneapolis, the man who had rejected drugs throughout his life, that man broke his own personal constitution in order to keep alive the only family he had. His death is so tragic because it seems cliche, rock star ODs in his mansion, but it's so not. It's a typical modern American story man who rejects drugs for most of his life so that he could work as hard as possible at his job, finds himself in deep pain because of his work, so he turns to opioids to keep working, and it kills him. So sad. But his death is not the end. Because he is his music, and his music lives on. And his music is all about the connection between spirituality and sexuality, about the power of positive thinking and believing in yourself, about the fact that God is real, that love matters, that you can be whoever you want to be, that you can be both masculine and feminine at the same time, that you can let your freak flag fly. And it was about the fact that he was as bad as hell. Who was Prince? He's someone whose actual life was far more incredible than the movie about him. And in a way, Prince can't die because he was his music and his music will last forever. Where was I? I was giving a speech in Detroit when the news started to spread. When I came off stage, I had to meet and greet folks in the audience and sign books and all of this. But I did glance at my phone and notice that the number of texts and missed calls was way, way higher than I had ever seen. But there were all these people all around me saying, hey, great speech, nice to meet you, all this stuff. But the 20th person I encountered said, do you know that Prince died? It was a woman who was holding my book about Prince. And I said, no, that's not true. Just reflexively, no. But she nodded in a really heavy way, and I looked down at my phone, and the number of missed calls and texts was even higher than before. And the first text I saw 
was saying the same thing that she was saying. And I was like, oh my God. MSNBC said they wanted me to come on and talk about Prince right away. So they put me in a private plane to New Jersey and then a helicopter to Manhattan and then a car to the studio, all while I'm in a daze thinking about Prince. And when I finally sat down with Rachel Maddow to talk about him, the thing that I couldn't get out of my mind was how incredibly sad it was that this man, who was a performer in the deepest recesses of his soul, this man who had rocked so many gigantic crowds and made so many people so happy, that man fell sick alone in an elevator and died alone and his body wasn't found for hours. He had lived so publicly, and yet in his last minutes, no one was there to save Prince. A few months after he died, I saw the revolution play at First Avenue. Wendy Melvoin led and sang, Sometimes it snows in April, and she broke down and cried, right in the middle of it. It was so sad. But there was an undercurrent of joy that night because Prince was still with us because his music was still with us. And his movies and his performances, his art is timeless. And he will be in our ears and on our screens doing what he loved, doing what he did best forever. Thank you for listening to Who Was Prince? Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall. Our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.